Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Momentum is one of the most important factors in investing, but despite its success, it can be one of the most difficult factors for investors to understand. And many remain skeptical about viability. In the two plus years we've run our podcast, we've had the opportunity to interview some of the best, most knowledgeable momentum investors out there. And we thought it would be interesting to bring together their wisdom and insights to help us better understand momentum. As always, thank you for listening and watching. Here are the best insights we could put together from our interviews on excess returns with some of the world's leading experts on momentum. But before we get into why momentum works, let's circle back and talk about why investors are skeptical of it. We interviewed Rayland founder Jason Zhu and asked him why momentum can be hard for many investors to understand. And the other one is, uh, look, some of these are investors who, in some ways, um, care about the the externality uh, of their of their investments. Right? Are they creating a positive externality? Are they giving capital to uh, good companies? Are they capital to undervalued companies and restoring their prices? Right? Helping this price discovery. When they start to question that, right, momentum doesn't do it. Right? Because momentum sometimes. Look, there is a speculative stock, it's running up, and you're trying to get ahead of the, the retail frenzy and betting on, you know, you're not the, uh, you're, you're not the last fool, right? There's a greater fool. And when you say, well, that's what's happening in momentum, then I would say institutional investors, particularly pension funds, they get a little less comfortable knowing that that's what's driving profits for them, right? The sort of betting on a greater fool in the market to perhaps get into a stock that's already overvalued and doesn't make sense. Yeah, we found that as well. You know, with momentum, it, it tends to be the hardest factor to explain to individual investors or to any investor because, you know, investors, I think, want to have some fundamental tie to what they're buying. And with momentum, all we're saying is, all right, the stock's up a lot. Let's buy it. Well, then the question is, well, why is it up? Well, we don't care why it's up. Just buy it because it's up. And, you know, that, that I think, I don't know if you found that as well, but that could be very difficult for investors to understand. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think most investors, especially at the institutional level, right, they, they care about, they're buying something of value, right? It's not just about making a quick, profit. Momentum is a newer factor than many of the other widely used investing factors. Before the factor became widely used by investors, the data to support it first came out of the academic world. We were fortunate enough to have one of the co-authors of the seminal paper on momentum, returns to buying winners and selling losers, implications for stock market efficiency, shared in Tenet. He provided us with the story behind that paper and a summary of what he found. So let me read you a passage from the book, Quantitative Momentum, which was written by our friends over at Alpha Architect. I think what I'm going to read provides some interesting context and color as to what was happening um, in the market at that time and how it was changing. And after I read this, I'd like you to um, comment on it, if you don't mind. So it says, momentum rises from the ashes. Finally, in the early 1990s, Jagadish and Tittman revitalized the findings from Levy's 1967 paper in their pioneering 1993 article, Returns to Buying Winners and Selling Losers, Implications for Market Efficiency. The paper essentially replicated the spirit of the analysis conducted by Levy in 67 but with the benefit of more data, computational power, and willingness on behalf of the establishment to publish research that questioned the efficient market hypothesis. By now, the cracks in the efficient market hypothesis armor were getting bigger. Interestingly enough, Jagadish and Tittman never mentioned the word momentum in their original paper, even though their paper is considered by many to be the seminal work on modern era stock selection momentum strategies. Okay, I, in terms of what was going on in the academic world at that point in time, uh, 
there were a lot more people questioning the idea of market efficiency. Um, so it's, it's clear that the profession, uh, was open to the ideas. It's still somewhat of a mystery to me that we went from 1967 when Levy, you know, talked about, uh, these strategies where again, he had a test that wasn't particularly powerful and, um, what he found wasn't that strong, but we went, you know, over 20 years, uh, without people doing a serious job of, you know, doing what Jayanish and I did was very seriously to look at Romito strategies. Can you give us an overview of what you found and what your research uncovered in your paper returns to buying winners and selling losers implications for market efficiency? Okay. Let me just first say that, um, part of the reason why it was surprising that there wasn't a lot of research on this in the academic world prior to, you know, the 1990s was that at least from my perspective, this was the obvious thing to look at. Okay. Any of our theories of market inefficiency are going to have some sort of story where the market either overreacts to information or underreacts to information. If the market tends to underreact information, you expect to see continuation. Stock price goes up, you know, from 10 to 15, but it was an underreaction. So then later it goes up from 15 to 20, or it could be an overreaction. It goes from 10 to 20 and then back to 15. So from our perspective, that was sort of the obvious type of test that you'd want to run if you want to think, you know, as first principles on market efficiency, does the market react appropriately to information? Okay. So what we do in that paper is we look at lots and lots of different intervals. You know, we're, we're looking at different holding periods, uh, different holding periods and different formation periods. So we would look back three months, um, rank returns based on the past three months, hold for the next three months, hold for the next six months, hold for the next nine months, hold for the next year. Then we look at, um, a look back period of six months. And again, looking at returns at three months, six months, nine months and a year and so on and so forth. So we looked at, you know, lots of different intervals and then did a careful statistical test that would control for the fact that we're doing some data mining and, um, and then ask the question, do we find more excess returns in, in all these strategies that we would expect from chance? And the answer is yes, we could very soundly reject the hypothesis that returns were basically following a random walk. When thinking about using momentum in an investment strategy, it is first important to understand the two different types of momentum investors can utilize. We discussed this in our episode, an in-depth look at momentum investing talking about the different kinds of momentum, there really are two different kinds, time series and cross-sectional. So time series is judging something relative to itself. So a good example of time series momentum is trend following. So if I want to say exit a position in an asset or a stock, if it breaks below its 50 day moving average, that's an example of time series momentum because all I need are the prices of that specific asset in order to implement that strategy. So I'm just judging it against itself. Then cross-sectional momentum is judging things against other assets. And so that's what's commonly used in stock, you know, factor selection strategies. You want to invest in the stocks that have the most momentum or the, the stocks that have gone up the most relative to their peers. And there, you know, there's a few different ways to measure that. Relative strength has been a popular one for a long time, which just ranks all stocks based on how far they've gone up over any given time period, say one year. 
and then assigns a score of 99 for the stocks that have gone up the most and one for the stocks that have gone up the least. And then if you're if you're following a relative strength strategy, you would invest in those stocks that have the 99. Um, and, we, and we can talk about some more advanced ones a little bit later on in the podcast, but that, that basically is the general way that momentum works. Two other basic questions that investors often ask with momentum is, what is the optimal period to measure it? And how often should a momentum portfolio be rebalanced? We pose these questions to Alpha Architects' Jack Vogel, who is the co-author of the book, Quantitative Momentum. If I wanted to look at it from a factor perspective, like an academic perspective, I would look at the return differential of high momentum relative to low momentum, right? And that's the momentum factor, momentum premium in academics examine. So essentially all you're doing is looking at past price returns across a subset of stocks, so like US stocks, and picking the winners uh, and essentially disregarding uh, the losing stocks in there. Now, the time period that you look at, right? So if you wanted to be a momentum investor, uh, one of the weird things about momentum is uh, there's generally a called like short, intermediate, and long-term momentum, right? So short-term momentum and long-term momentum have what's known as a, the reversal effect, right? And the reversal effect is actually saying past months, like short-term means like one month, one week, but one month winners are next month's losers, right? Similar to for long-term momentum, the past five-year winners tend to be the past five, the next five-year losers, et cetera, et cetera. Right now, when we talk about momentum, most people think of like continuation of returns. And one thing about, uh, that is in general, you got to look what's called intermediate term momentum. So like nine months to 15 months, you would look at the return over that period. And then when you form your portfolios, something that's slightly different than let's say value investing is you need to rebalance this portfolio more often. Right. So the academics look at it at a monthly rebalance frequency. Um, you know, we've done some perturbations. We have a post on our site where we basically just said, let's do it every one month or two months or three months, all the way down to a year. And in general, if I was saying, if you were going to be running a momentum strategy, you want to rebalance it probably every three months. Gary Antonacci, author of Dual Momentum, also had some thoughts on this topic. For, for relative momentum, um, you know, you mentioned relative strength before, which is a good, you know, which is a commonly used approach. Um, a lot of the academic research prefers to use 12 minus one momentum to get rid of the most recent month. In terms of relative momentum, what, what do you think the best measures are? Well, 12 minus one is a, a little bit um, misleading in some ways, because when um, Jagadish and Tipman did it, they actually used, they skipped the last week which makes more sense because uh, stocks tend to be mean reverting uh, over shorter periods of time, days or week, two weeks. But that, once you get up to a month and longer, then uh, momentum kicks in, especially over three months. Uh, so people use would skip the last month just because they had monthly data. They didn't have a daily or uh, And that really is a phenomenon of stocks with the, them being short-term, being reverting. You get into other assets, then even skipping the last week not make so much sense. So in terms of look-back periods, what time frame you're evaluating over, uh, 12 months is used a lot in the academic side. Uh, it tends to uh, give fewer trades and uh, the results are, are pretty strong, uh, but it, 
Jagadish and Tittman showed anywhere from three to 12 months. Individual stocks is pretty good. And some assets, uh, you know, respond better with shorter look backs and somewhat longer. Now that we have covered the basics of momentum, it might be a good time to circle back to the initial question as to why it works. There are two basic explanations that are most often cited. The first is that momentum stocks are riskier and investors can earn an excess return as compensation for that risk. The second is a behavioral one that investors tend to underestimate good news in the immediate term. But which one is correct or are they both? We asked Sheridan Tittman. No, I, I, it's behavioral. Um, I would, I, I don't put much weight on the, the, the rational stories. I mean, you can always vote with a rational risk-based story and maybe there's something to that, but, um, this is mainly a behavioral issue. I have a very recent paper where we look at Chinese A and B shares. Are you familiar with that? You know, the A and B markets in China? Yes. Okay. So they're exactly the same stock, basically. Uh, one, they both trade in China. Okay. But the A market is basically the domestic market where you use the local currency to buy the stock and in the B market, you need access to us dollars or home among dollars to buy the stocks. So, so the stocks don't exactly move in the same place. Um, the dividends are identical. So it's a, the best experiment you can have in terms of basically saying, I want an experiment where, um, the return differences have nothing to do with the fundamentals of the firm. It has to do with the, you know, the moods and, uh, views of the actual investors. And so what's interesting is that in the A market, there's no momentum. That's kind of well known. People talk about the fact that in the Chinese market, you don't see momentum. Um, and in the Chinese A market, you see pretty strong reversals. Now the B market, exactly the same stocks in the sense of exactly the same dividends and exact same fundamentals. Okay. But those stocks do in fact show momentum and they don't find, you don't see reversals in those stocks. Okay. So it's, so it's the nature of the individuals that are generating these return differences. In the real world, momentum investing is usually not just about using a simple metric and calling it a day. Most practitioners take it beyond that. One interesting way to improve a basic approach is to look at consistency and momentum. Jack Vogel will explain why. Consistent momentum, uh, is just effectively, and we embed this in our like index and in our strategy effectively, um, the one paper that we use in our indexes, it's called a uh, frog in the pan, um, uh, consistent momentum. And, and basically what they're looking at there is they, they wanted to see is the momentum premium driven by, um, firms that have like kind of more consistent momentum or ones that have like jumpy momentum. So the example and why it's called frog in the pan is, you know, if you throw a frog into a pot of boiling water, it's going to just jump right out, right? Cause it's going to identify this is boiling water. I'm going to jump out. If you throw a frog into cold water and it slowly turn up the heat, it's not going to realize. And eventually, of course, it's going to die. Right? So in this study, in that paper, what they did is they looked at basically the different types of momentum. So, you know, I use, always use the same example. You, you have boring big box. Right. And boring big box is a high momentum firm because it basically was up 50 basis points for 200 days. So it's up hundred percent over the past, you know, 10 months. Alternatively, right. We have exciting biotech and an exciting biotech, right. It's just kind of jumping around. And then five months ago, it got FDA approval. It jumped up hundred percent and it's been literally flatlined since then. Right. 
So in that paper, and you know, we've studied this as well, uh, uh, a couple the, you know, replicated it, changed the universe and it seemed to work as well. Essentially you want to be buying the, the high momentum names that have more consistent momentum, right? And that spread between high and low momentum is generally driven by the more consistent, both good and bad momentum, right? But on the, on the, uh, high momentum side, we will look for firms that basically have high momentum and they also have this consistent. In addition to being used on individual assets, momentum can be used on factors themselves to try to improve returns relative to a buy and hold approach. Heron De Silva, portfolio manager at the Systematic Edge team at Allspring Global Investments, explains how he implements this in his investment approach. You know, one of the things you'll see with, with many multi-factor investors is they'll just sort of set there, you know, I've got my percentage to quality, my percentage to value, and those are sort of keep that consistent over time. But you've talked about how you think momentum actually can be used to maybe change the exposure to factors and, and invest more in the factors that are working well. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, why you believe that and how that gets implemented in a portfolio. Yeah. So this goes back to my, um, my kind of introduction to, uh, quant investing where I was looking at individual managers and what I noticed that the ma managers of a certain type, managers who focused on dividend yield, managers who focused on earnings growth, for example, they all tended to rise together and then they stayed at the top for a while, usually one to three years before they got out of favor. And it's not that the managers got, got stupid or lost their edge. It's just that the factor they were loading out went out of favor. And that's where I noticed that factors, you know, just like fashion or music, they go in and out of favor. And often it's really important to identify which factors are in favor and then emphasize that in the portfolio. So I find that factors that have been in favor for about a year have the most importance. Two years, less important. And after about three years, factor momentum tends to die away. And Jack, when we first started doing this, um, I would say, you know, 25 years ago, you know, we, we would get a raised eyebrow when I went to talk to consultants about it, saying, are you talking about timing factors? And I would say, no, it's not about timing factors. It's about recognizing that the factor risk premium changes over time. But more recently, there have been more and more academic papers that have talked about this, and they've really documented this whole idea of one-year factor momentum. And, you know, it's been really rewarding to see that. And, and do you do it at the metric level as opposed to the factor level? So in other words, if, is, it's not value has momentum, it's price to sales has momentum. Do you do it at that much of a granular level? We do. Yeah, I think it's really important to do it as a, at a granular level. So for example, you know, from a quality standpoint, everybody thinks of operating margin, but there's other factors like ROE, which have gotten really important recently. And you have to do it at that granular level to actually get the best use out of factor momentum. We have mostly focused on cross-sectional momentum so far, but time series momentum or trend following is also commonly used to help mitigate risk and limit drawdowns. Jack Vogel explains this concept. So again, sometimes trend is called momentum as well, right? But, but let's just clarify. So momentum, what we talked about before is we have hundred stocks we're picking the top 50 because they did well, right? Trend following is I'm going to look at one asset, right? So I'm going to look at S&P 500. Is the S&P 500 trending up or is it trending down, right? And I think that's the simplest way to bifurcate is basically trend following is, is my single asset or the one 
uh, is the single asset that I'm looking at, is it trending up or is it trending down? Right. And there's different ways in which you can roll it. Yeah. So the one way, the first way is called moving average rules, right? And a moving average rule is you look at the last price and you compare that to the average of the prices over the past 12 months, right? If you're doing monthly data or 200 days or 250 days, right? So that's a moving average rule. Another way you could look at it is what's called time series momentum, which is you just look at the past or total return over the past year or 10 months or nine months, compare that to the return to cash, or you can compare it to the return to just zero, right? Whatever you want to set as your risk. If your return of your asset is above the return to cash, you're invested. If it's below the return to cash, get out, you go to cash. So a trend following is a simple approach to effectively be in or out of an asset class from time to time, depending on the trend in the price. But like anything in investing, trend following isn't without its own issues or set of trade-offs. In this case, it relates to investor behavior and investors' ability to stick with it. We discussed this in our episode, Navigating Bull and Bear Markets with Trend Following. Yeah, this gets back to we this idea from Jim O'Shaughnessy we've talked about in the podcast a lot, which is this idea that investors have two points of failure. One point of failure is when the market declines a lot, like it is now, I'm going to sell and I'm going to panic and I'm going to miss it when it bounces back. The other one is when I look different than my neighbors, I'm going to panic and I'm going to abandon a strategy. And so trend following is very good on the first one because I'm limiting those declines. It's very bad on the second one in that I am going to look very different than the market at times. So for instance, as an example, there are going to be times where I'm going to be sitting in cash and my neighbors are going to be making a lot of money because the market's going up. Or even worse, there are going to be times where trend following sort of keeps reversing back and forth and it continues to get both signals wrong. It gets the buy wrong and it gets the sell wrong. And I have to sit there and endure that. And so this is one of the reasons that I think for a lot of investors, like putting their entire portfolio in trend following, although it seems so great on paper, is, a, is really a bad idea. It's, it's because during these periods where trend struggles, and like you said, it can be many, many years. I mean, you know, looking at our system on Validia, you know, the three-year return of trend following is 3% behind the market. The five-year is 2% behind the market. So there's been a very long period here where trend following has reduced your returns. And for an investor to sit, sit there and endure that and not abandon the strategy and just go back to long only is very, very difficult. And that's why I think a lot of for a lot of people, at least a full exposure to trend following is probably not the greatest idea. And Alpha Architect founder Wes Gray made that point even better than we did when he discussed why they spend so much time educating trend following investors about the drawbacks of the strategy. And, and, that's, and that to me is just common sense because ever, it's not hard like anyone with half a brain and Excel spreadsheet can go do back tests on trend following on every asset class that's ever walked the planet and be like, holy cow, I, I basically get most of the return with half the drawdown. I should do that. Um, it's like a duck, right? The, the problem is that's not the hard part. The hard part is sticking to it to the behavior. And so that requires like a deep understanding, a deep endowment effect and a deep appreciation for just how bad and just how ugly and painful this whole like relative performance and like careerist thing can be like people discount that too much. And so, well, if you want to solve that, just run towards the fire, right? Like, let's just, let's just directly address the elephant in the room. This sucks, you know, buckle up buttercup. Uh, <laughs> that's just how life is. And we're just going to tell you how it is. And if you're cool with that and you understand it, well, guess what? This is the greatest idea that you'll probably ever run across and welcome to the team. Um, but if you can't get your head wrapped around it, like it's just, it's not going to be a good fit.
even if it's the best idea on the planet, it, it, for certain people, it's probably the worst idea on the planet. Uh, and that's cool, you know? In the end, Momentum is a great tool for many investors. It is strongly supported by academic research and it has worked in the real world. But taking advantage of it requires discipline and enduring periods when it also struggles. So it isn't for everyone. The most important thing for any investor is selecting a strategy that works for them and that applies to Momentum just like any other approach. As always, thank you for listening.